0: Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare. Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT.
1: Hey everyone, I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today, and we're excited to bring you another in our series of interviews with top leaders in health IT. And today's guest is Josh Rubel. He's chief commercial officer for MD Clone. Welcome, Josh.
0: Thanks, John. Great to be here.
1: Yeah, good to have you back on the show. Uh, you know, this is kind of an extension of the conversation we started a couple of years back. But before we dive into LLMs and synthetic data, tell us a little bit about yourself and MD Clone.
0: You bet, and it is a pleasure to be back. Always uh, always nice to reconnect with the team at uh, Healthcare IT today. Um, so I'm Josh Rubel. like you mentioned, I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at MD Clone. Uh, and MD Clone is a software company that's really focused on uh, enabling healthcare providers and their partners to get the most out of healthcare data. Um, and, and really when we talk about getting the most out of data, you know, the lens to view us through is quality improvement, performance improvement, uh, academic research and third-party innovation opportunities uh, where uh, where health systems can uh, make their data available uh, to industry and to other academic partners uh, to find the next uh, amazing innovations that may uh, that may be uncovered through the use of that data. So the, the business is is kind of heavily focused on making data useful. And so the topic around generative AI and LLM, you know, I, I agree. It, it's the right conversation for us to be having, um, in particular with MD Clone's unique technical capabilities of both simplifying how to do data extraction and also layering privacy preservation atop data with our synthetic offering that I think is is likely what what uh what we're gonna be talking about. So very excited and excited to dive in. Yeah, I mean, I think you do have a,
1: a unique perspective as as a, uh, you know, certified data nerds, I think is appropriate, <laughs> you know, <laughs> being extracting the data and understanding it. Cause when you talk about large language models, it's all about the data. So what's your view on LLMs, right? Large language models in, in healthcare, how do you see them playing
0: out? So, you know, I had a chance um, about a year ago to hear Peter Lee from Microsoft talk about, you know, what uh, large language models could mean for, the world of uh, the world of healthcare and and how they work uh, related to the the creation of new knowledge. So, so the the kind of essence of artificial intelligence and it's fascinating. I kind of got a behind the scenes peek at at what OpenAI was going to uh, deliver to the market maybe uh, maybe a month or two early, um, uh, at least conceptually and it was amazing to hear kind of what the opportunity for ai looks like and how this one little small piece of how we can potentially generate ai might be transformative so llms you know the probably the best way to think about them is taking the entire corpus of human thought that's been converted to text and leveraging that thought algorithmically to answer questions and or guide someone who's interested in exploring a particular um, uh, problem they have, a particular subject area that they want to dive into taking that corpus of human knowledge. Again, that's been codified in text and applying it to those questions in a conversational sort of way. And that's really what we've seen with Bard and with chat GPT and with many of the other tools uh, that have been, um, uh, of steadily rising in use here over the last six or seven months so that's what a large language model is um and you know it's, a, it's pretty amazing when you think about it it's it's uh maybe a better way to describe it as taking all of human understanding and then making that available to generate more understanding you know it sounds like what a library is for or you know if you hearken back you know, if we're really being data nerds this is the great library of Alexandria on steroids right I mean you have you have as much um, uh, knowledge that you can you know, put in a box and then you can apply it in an easy way. You can apply that knowledge to, to um, what your next set of questions will be to create more knowledge. In that respect, you know, it's not necessarily AI. Um, that vast set of knowledge that I was just describing has been aggregated over time since people have been able to write things down. Uh, and it's been passed on generation to generation. And man, we have gotten very good at writing things down over the last several thousand years. Uh, now we can take all of that that's been written and just apply it fast. Um, that's not the AI piece. The AI piece is okay. Corpus of knowledge, give me new knowledge mm-hmm. and react to me in a new context. Let's make use of that uh, corpus. That's where the AI comes in. Um, it's fascinating, really, in every every part of our economy, every part of uh, of human interaction. And in healthcare, which is such a big part of our economy, uh, and where there's so much potential value, especially knowledge projects, data projects, um, uh, there's certainly applicability, and and happy to dive in. I mean, think about the corpus of all human knowledge. You know, the part of it that's healthcare. You know, it's not a small percentage. John. Yeah, it's probably a you know greater than five percent of all knowledge. You know, think about every research paper, right? think about every medical journal, think about every article published, and then think about medical records. Um, You know, there's a ton of compiled text that happens to be uh, focused on healthcare. And now all of that can be part of a large language model framework. um, As long as you get a couple of things right, it's got to be good data. And, you know, based on the relationship between patient and provider organization, that's, housing that data, uh, it's gotta be privacy preserved. And I think that's likely where synthetic comes in. So I'm happy to dive in. And anyway, as you can tell, it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart.
1: (laughs) No, for sure. And there's a couple of things you said that were really interesting. The, the, The first one that I find interesting is that, you know, you talked about using it to discover new things. Whereas I actually think one of the coolest parts of large language models is actually bubbling up information and knowledge that's clear that people just haven't learned like it's new to me right it's it's, you know like when you buy a new car that's used you're like well it's a new car to me (laughs) i don't know it right and and i think that's what large language models do is they often bubble up information that is knowledge someone else has and it flattens that world and, and gives it to you know imagine a new med student right who obviously doesn't have the years of experience getting it so anyway i think that's an interesting element of it you know whereas like you know net new discoveries is also interesting I, th- I mean i think it can do both which is fascinating the the other interesting way is when you described it as um you know just this body of of human knowledge that it's going through uh, you know it reminds me of uh, something someone said and i've said it a few times on-, on this uh podcast is that uh you know when people talk about hallucinations Actually, someone said that on the internet, probably, right? (laughs) It's actually not pulling necessarily and making stuff up, although there are some cases where it does. It's often them pulling up that a lot of people said something that was totally inappropriate. And I I apply that to healthcare, and I think about how many clinical notes documented something wrong or maybe prescribed the wrong thing in the wrong (laughs) instance, right? Because they didn't have the knowledge they needed. We, We have that same problem with healthcare data, I think. So
0: anyway, it's interesting to think about, right? Absolutely. There's something our our president, our current president says um or used to say related to elections, you know, you know, are you comparing me to my opponent or are you comparing me to the Almighty? Mm-hmm. Um, and the um where you're heading, I, you know, is a derivative of that, which is, you know, are you comparing me to the alternative or are you comparing me to perfect? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, I think I think that's the right, I think it's the right lens to think about how these tools can be used. At the end of the day, you know, what we want is better, whatever, whatever we're working on, we want it to be better than it is now. Uh, and if the generative AI framework makes us better, smarter, faster, um, even with certain mistakes and inherent risks, you know, it's something we've got to dive into, because um, that's the goal. The goal isn't perfect. The goal is better.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about synthetic data. You've kind of mentioned it and, you know, we'll link to our previous discussion where we dove into it pretty deep as well, but how far have we come kind of in our use of synthetic data in healthcare?
0: Uh, you know, I think we've come pretty far. I think, um, I think, you know, when we spoke a few years back, we were, we were definitely still in a conceptual mode. Um, you know, since then, Gosh, we've had 10 plus large scale provider organizations, including federal agencies in the United States and and other government entities around the world, uh, start to use synthetic output uh, for things like um, uh, large scale data challenges, uh, or even um, uh, uh, much more secure, much more privacy preserved uh, defined research projects managed entirely by an internal team at a healthcare institution. Uh, Synthetic data, you know, we've now been involved in thousands of projects around the world. Um, And when we originally spoke, you know, that number was probably more like in the tens or maybe even the very, very low hundred. You know, right around there. I think we've now, um, you know, the the growth's been exponential. Largely because the data is now more available. We have customers that use the synthetic output. Um, uh, So before it was conceptual. Now it's, you know, facts on the ground. Uh, These data are available and they are, they are mineable. Um, Related to um, uh, kind of how it's progressed, you know, the the trick in the synthetic output is it's got to mirror reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, there are lots of different ways potentially to do it. Uh, In our experience in healthcare, MD clone is a unique company. We can generate synthetic data on demand for a cohort of patients. Imagine that cohort has certain features that you're looking for, you know, 10, 15, 20 some odd features. Um, we can generate a synthetic data set on the fly that mirrors for that cohort of patients the, the features that you're looking for, mirrors it to the tune of good science um, uh, without any uh, uh, privacy impact, meaning it's an entirely uh, privacy preserved data set. There is no real patient data in the output, uh, uh, but it tells the same story um, as what the real patient data output would have told. That's how our platform operates. And the um, the ramification of kind of having many, many thousands of these now performed is that we've tuned it correctly. We are answering the question correctly, meaning um, the output does tell the same story as uh, the original data, as the, the PHI. Um, and, you know, confirmed and, again, in a highly regulated environment, places like the U.S. federal government with the VA, uh, uh, places in Canada that are, again, you know, provincial, uh, large-scale health systems with a ton of expertise in this, they have um, they have proven that the concept works. And, of note, a challenge in healthcare with large language models and generative AI is, okay, what can you put in Um, what 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 are you allowed to put into sure. a large language model? Um, if you're looking for insights around a particular population, and of course, patient privacy is a big challenge. You cannot sure. you cannot put PHI, protected health information, into a Microsoft managed you know large language model without a lot of privacy protection. And yeah. one of the things that we see as a significant opportunity. And also, you know, it's a business opportunity, but it's a significant opportunity to do more with data, which is really our mission um, for our customers in the world. Um, uh, synthetic kind of bridges one of the real gaps around how you can potentially use a large language model. Um, and we're seeing kind of explosive growth in, in that respect. And I can walk you through what that model looks like, too.
1: Yeah, I want to dive into that before we go there. Like. It is a mind bend, right? To say that you can create synthetic data that's as good as the identifiable data, if you will. Like, you know what I mean? You're saying it has all the same characteristics but not the, you know, like those feel at odds, right? Like just on its face, it's, you know, it feels odd. Like help us understand what the process is, or I don't know, like, you you know, to help us understand how that can accomplish that without, you know, having the identity
0: there. Sure. So let me start by saying it's not magical and it's also not perfect. Mm -hmm. There are certain times when you wouldn't um, uh, use a synthetic uh, cohort for many reasons, and I'll, I'll get into that here in a second, but the the process, you know, is really uh, around developing synthetic output. Um, the, the process can work in one of two ways. The first way is you have a large scale cohort, pick a therapeutic area for, for example, and you've got lots and lots and lots of features that you want to study, an unlimited number of features. Um, an advance that we've made from a synthetic output standpoint is we're able to take, uh, you know, by therapeutic area, we're able to take uh, a very, very large number of features um, and build a synthetic data lake that looks remarkably like um, the original data lake that uh, that those features are pulled from. And, you know, we do that through a combination of sampling and using guns and a series of techniques to create a data lake. Again, that if you look at all of the features and start to compare them, they will tell the same story um, uh, as the original data lake. And that's a kind of, again, a multi-process set of steps that we take to generate that lake. It takes a couple of days, Um, it's a, uh, It's a a large scale kind of services and technology lift to get a data lake out. We've done that now, you know, five to 10 times, it's brand new technology that we've developed over the last year. Uh, And it really helps, you know, we we are in a project today called V through the VA, where we've done this exact thing. And they've released a large scale cardiovascular data set to the FDA and an FDA partner in England, MHRA. the comparison work that's going on and the use of the of the synthetic lake that we've created now they have a you know kind of lake that tells the, the real story and they can make it available to you know innovators who are trying to solve a problem related to chf readmission um and or the use of particular drugs uh to um uh to better manage patient populations that that framework in existence and really interesting and that's process one Process two is our classic model, where it's not the full lake, it's not all features inside the therapeutic area. Instead, it's a defined set of features. Now, we call this a precision cohort. And the reason we call it a precision cohort is the synthetic output that you can create, and the, the, I'll walk you through the process in a second, is like to a T, you know, with, um, with the right sort of uh, values associated with scientific certainty lined up with the original data. The lake is a bit more like horseshoes, the precision cohort is a is a, a precision guided munition. Now, the way we generate the precision cohort is um, again, it's not magic. We know what the shape of the original data is because it's loaded into the MD Clone platform. And if you've got ten features, you know what you need to worry about is a correlative outcome that you know you're where you're comparing one feature to each other feature and then one feature to all features. And that's what a three D like a shape of data would look like. At what we do, and it's difficult, again, it's not magical, but it's, it's difficult and it takes a ton of uh, technical prowess. What we do is recreate the shape of the original data hmm. and fill it with fictional data. But the, the, the trick is that fictional data, again, has to tell the same story one-to-one one and one-to-many across the features that you selected. So that's the kind of the synthetic process. The other capability that we brought to bear to make all of this a reality hmm is we can generate it in five seconds. So that the technical prowess, you know, included the statistical knowledge and included the workflow around, okay, how do we pull that data fast? And then how do we generate that synthetic data so that uh, people aren't waiting around?
1: Interesting, yeah. and and when is it best to use synthetic data versus not? Is it is it more about research? Or are you seeing it used directly with patients, or you know, is there a time that you know, hey, yeah, we need the real data, not synthetic data? How are you seeing that kind of play out?
0: We see the use of synthetic um, really proliferating in um, in a couple of different moments, but probably the most important moment is hypothesis testing hey well two moments one hypothesis testing hey i've got an idea i don't know if there's a there there but i want to start to play and that moment happens in quality improvement it happens in performance improvement and it definitely happens in academic research yeah now
1: help accountable care organizations if they absolutely (laughs) yeah
0: yeah hey what if we rejigger the um the way we do phone calls for a patient um appointment uh, reminders Mm -hmm. so that like what if we did all the calls in the morning instead of any in the afternoon would that have an impact on our uh, uh, appointment rate or our no call no show rate Um, that's an operational question that you know i wonder and i use that as an example we have customers that use our tooling for that all the time Um, if you are not allowed to see real patient data and you've got that question like what does that look like in a health system Today, that looks like an IT project that somebody has to spin up. Some, you know, talented, really smart, creative employee. She's amazing. She's like, hey, wait a minute. I think we should be calling in the morning. because and, and then her and boss, she says,
1: and...
0: <laughs> she says, well, prove it. Why? And great. How do you do that? How would she prove it? She would, like, put in an IT ticket to get a data set. And then, and then analysts would have to spin it up. And it's like, well, is it all phone calls? Or is it just the appointment reminder phone. Anyway, there would be a ton of complexity built into this one question. Mm -hmm. And six months later, maybe she'd be able to prove it. Like our job is to make that six minutes. Like Mm -hmm. she, if she wants that answer, she's got to go get it. One of the things getting in front of, in in her way is, wait a minute, is she allowed to see the real patient data or not? With synthetic, it just, that gets pushed to the side. So those use cases like that, um, uh, they've proliferated. There are tons Mm -hmm. of those examples. that's, That's where and how people are using the. The tooling, what we're seeing that's of interest is, hey, wait a minute. I want to do that analysis, but I don't want to actually do the analysis work. I have my creative smart idea. How can I leverage a large language model to actually flesh this out, to act as my um, you know, kind of world's most powerful research assistant, to take all of human codified knowledge and apply it to a new little data set um again in a world where you have privacy concerns you cannot load that data set into a large language model but what about a synthetic data set can you load that into a large language model tool um and can you uh, can you allow that large language model tool to go mine and mm. you know our, that it, that interest area is um blossoming is the wrong word it's it's exploding
1: <laughs> it's a very quick blossom. Uh yeah, I mean, let's talk more about that. How you see these large language models and, and the synthetic data working together in healthcare. Is it about feeding the large language model with more data? But because it's synthetic, we can do that. Or do you see other uses, you know, ways that those two are going to play together?
0: So that's the first one. Um, and I think there's a ton of work for us to do in that in that space, right? How do we how do we make healthcare data, real-time healthcare data available um, to a large language model? Synthetic's a great answer.
1: Well, and I um, heard one person, I think it was H2OAI, said that uh, you know, when they do this, uh, they said, you need your own language LLM you know your own llm for your organization or maybe even every doctor needs their own llm that's based on how they practice you know like th- which that blows your mind too when you start <laughs> we have individual llms and how are you going to get the data to build those i think synthetics an interesting option
0: yes and i think our synthetic lake opportunity is um is more in more in line with the training which is really where i think where maybe that quote that you uh, you shared maybe they're heading towards you know how do we train this uh, language model so that it, it it um delivers the clinical advice in the voice of the the physician who's ordering it you know when she mm-hmm. finds whatever she finds it, it, it can really sound like her um really act like her i think that's really interesting I, I think that might be that fruit may be further up the tree, though, John, I think the lowest hanging fruit is um, is a, a leveraging the power of the model itself mm-hmm. to get to better quality and or better performance and or uh, better research. I mean, the the. the I had an opportunity to join a Future of Health conference uh, a couple of weeks back in Boston, hosted by uh, Beth Israel Alehi. And, um, you know, I got a chance to see then leverage and an example in a demonstration, a company called Hippocratic AI um, demonstrated using a large language model to, to in effect, handle um, uh, prep prior to a procedure, you know, patient outreach call prior to a procedure and have that large language model interact with the patient. Um, And it was a colonoscopy and it was a question about the prep and if they could use Miralax versus the actual prep and they played it out and it was a cool example, but the business case was, Hey, for a nurse to have that conversation, it's, it's 90 or $120 an hour. If I have a large language model, having that conversation with the capacity of, you know, a, a nurse, um, with good or better, not perfect, as the goal, you know, maybe that's a, a dollar an hour. Hey, mm-hmm. you know that, you know, we can find a business case. But you know, I was scratching my head, thinking, well, gosh, to get to get knowledge work out. If you're a data scientist, if you're a um, an analyst, um, you know, the data wrangling piece and the building the visualizations, if all of that could be done by a large language model, because none of that's I mean, that is a commodity. Which graph should I use to show this point? Like, that is perfect for an LLM. Perfect. It's not asking you to explain Einstein's theory of relativity. It's simply, <laughs> hey, I've got 15 different graph choices. LLM, what's the best one to use for this specific? Um, and that could be like four weeks of work for analyst land. Like, if you can shrink that to four seconds, you know, that is a major cost saving. And it creates this opportunity for way, way, way more value. If you could do I can do it in four seconds. Well, how much more could I do? Um, you know, that becomes the interesting question. And I, anyway, I think that's the first—that's the first layer of the tree, where there's where there's real fruit.
1: That's interesting, because and I think that you know we sometimes look at large, and, and this is a mind changing perspective right to to think about how we use this technology because you're right if you feed in 10 charts that say all 10 of these are accurate which one's the best <laughs> you know that's a different way of you know like you, you don't have the hallucinations because you already fed in 10 charts that you know are accurate it's just helping you do it understand it better and analyze it better it's, that's really interesting um you know looking at this another way and you, you've you talked about a couple examples. So I'm really curious, do you think that the large language models and synthetic data are going to be used at kind of more of the population level? I mean, you know, your data lake kind of example, or do you see it kind of at the individual patient level that, you know, the doctor is going to be using these LLMs to, to analyze and treat patients or, or maybe both? Uh, yeah, How do you see that? Um, you know, cause the data has been interesting, right? I mean, MD clone has been on this data journey for a long time. Yeah. We started with data warehouses that nobody knew what to do with them. And so we collated all this data and a lot of them didn't get value out of it. Right. We do have EHRs that are very patient specific, uh, you know, obviously trying to bill and a few things like that. So, you know, wh- where do you see this LLMs and synthetic data? Is it kind of more a population size or, or individual patients?
0: All the above. I mean, let's. So, first of all, um, the the beauty of the way that the, the OpenAI and Albar, the way the tools are constructed, is it's conversational. So you can ask whatever question you want, and again, it's drawing on the corpus of all human codified text. Okay, and for, up until three years, something like that. Um, so the um, the I, I don't see a distinction between population and patient. In fact, my wager is, and I I am sure you talk to a lot of physicians as part of this podcast um you know as soon as they got their hands on chat gpt for instance downloaded on their mobile devices you know i, I my suspicion is the bell shape curve looks a lot like 95% of them asked a diagnostic level question if a patient presents and looks like x mm-hmm. y and z and their temperature is you know 100 and they were visited etc cetera, etc cetera, you know clinical scenario you know, what's the right course of treatment, or what's the right diagnosis, or what are the chances of X, you better believe 95% of that bell-shaped curve ask questions like that. Because that's their work. They ask questions like that all the time. And so, of course, they would ask, ask them to other people, other consultants, ask them of their EHR and clinical decision support. Like, that's so much of their work. Of course, they will leverage these new tools to ask questions like that and and i'll bet they were they judged the response you know with their clinical background they judged yeah. that response and so you know we would be naive to think that these tools aren't going to be used in that capacity they are and they again better is the goal here they are going to be used in that capacity and we have to do a really good job of making sure that these tools are you know used correctly one and two that are um uh, giving accurate results uh, but they're going to be used that way and they're going to be used for a ton of uh, of pursuits that are population level, you know, research pursuit, uh, population behavior pursuit, you know, epidemiology. I mean, and they should be the the again the beauty of these tools is the interaction um, uh, point. The UI is uh, it's a chatbot. I mean, it's yeah. genius. Yeah. Well,
1: it's funny you say that because I have a statistics professor friend that. Was talking about neural networks early on. This is, you know, four or five years ago, mm-hmm. he, and I, I was asking him about a project. I said, "If we give you all this data, can you can you output? You know, can you look at what's interesting with the data? And he, you know, or can you focus on these specific things?" He said, "John, no." He said, "You give me the data. I'll have the neural networks run on it, and then I'll tell you what's interesting with the data." Yeah. <laughs> and and, and yeah, like I heard him say that, I understood what he was doing. I didn't know why that would work. But I think to your point, the beauty of ChatGPT was they made the interface so anyone could experience that across all of human knowledge, right? So, to me, that's what makes this exciting: is it's opened up the creativity and the accessibility of this technology that's actually been here for a couple of years.
0: Amen. I think you got it right, and I think that I think your uh, statistics friend, you know, I I sometimes flip um, flippantly say. You know, hey, do you want to ask the questions or do you want the super fancy smart machines asking the questions to help to help you figure out what, what's the right questions to ask? Um, and maybe I should be a little less flip with that because I think we're, I think that is where we're heading. But I think we want both, right? The, the you know, we're amazing creatures. Humans have this innate creativity, you know at least in some of us, not named me. Um, <laughs> and we, well, you want to foster it. And it's, you know, that's part of the the kind of beauty of being a human on planet earth in 2023. And we want, you know, more, better, smarter, faster knowledge. So you got to, yeah, you you got to work with the tools you have. And this is a very powerful new tool.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I should disclose that I did not use ChatGPT or an LLM to create the questions <laughs> for this uh, this uh, podcast. I don't think you did for your answers either. But uh, you know, it's funny we actually have done that for other podcasts, and you know, it comes up with interesting topics, but not very novel. So I think that was an interesting uh, take there. But <laughs> Josh, yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I, I first of all, I uh, I should say that there is no replacing the uh human at the wheel here it does it all falls apart without two eyes and a brain to um to screen validate you know get to the experience level we're not there yet we're not going to be there anytime soon uh maybe never um mm-hmm. uh, it requires um uh the human touch uh because we're humans. so you know and we we can smell we can sniff out when it's not human always
1: yeah well, and the creativity of the humans to use the technology in really interesting ways—that's what never ceases to amaze me. Uh, and I think that's been true with every technology. So, yeah, we're we're on that curve. Well, thanks so much, Josh. This was a fun conversation, a good dive into synthetic data and LLMs and appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge and insights. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. If you want to find more great healthcare IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcasting applications. Thanks, Josh.
0: Thank you, John. Take care.